Hello. Hello. Welcome to episode one. I'm Warren. I'm Paul. Uh, let's start off by looking at some of the games tech entertainment news that's circulating the internet at the moment. Paul, do you want to start us off? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, um, I'm a little bit ill-prepared because I've been at a festival all <laughs> weekend, uh, so on very few hours sleep um, and very little water absorbed through the weekend as well, um, I've been able to sort of scratch something together. So uh, what I wanted to discuss is the new Marvel Phase 4 mm. Um Announcement. That Some interesting made things at Comic Con. So the they introduced what the next phase is going to look like. Uh, the sort of series of films that are going to be coming out to us. Uh, a few of them uh, weren't really a surprise to to a lot of people, um, but yeah, there's a couple of quite exciting sounding ones in there for for some people. Um, they've also confirmed. A few are yet to be released, even though they're not on the official list that they released at Comic-Con, so they've got to do a Fantastic Four. Yeah, they, they've teased Fantastic Four and X-Men, which has been a long time coming, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. That should be interesting, because they, they, haven't they teased uh, something different for X-Men? I don't know yeah. what that could possibly mean, but yeah, very exciting, very exciting. Well, it was never, it never had that real feeling of being a Marvel movie, had it, uh, the uh, Fantastic Four? Uh, no, sorry, not Fantastic Four. Well, the uh, first X Men film really sort of—I don't know—it sort of kick-started the the two thousands era of superhero mm-hmm. films because the the sort of mid to late nineties were starting to get a bit tired. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I, Fantastic Four. I mean, I don't know. Fantastic Four is such a. I would like to see how they handle that franchise. Yeah. Because it's it's not as gritty or as exciting. And again, you know, it's my opinion. Uh, I'm sure back in the hands of Marvel, it'll be obviously uh, in safe hands and surely they'll mm. do something that will be appealing to all. But um, yeah, we've had we've had two lots of two attempts at Fantastic Four movies. Yeah. And they, they, they're just, I don't know, they they lack something. We'll see. I really enjoyed the first movie. I remember it coming out. Where well, this is it. The first one was all right. The second one was a bit of a mess. And yeah. the, the reboot a couple of years back was just, Worse. Atrocious, absolutely <laughs> yeah. abysmal. Yeah, um, but no, yeah, it should be interesting. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to tie all that in. Obviously, it looks as though they're trying to introduce a new host of uh, superheroes uh, to sort of try and replace the Avengers in some sort of way. I think this is you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. It's like, obviously, the longer the Marvel Cinematic Universe sort of lasts, there's going to be more scope and more demand, I imagine, for sort of prequels and films in between other films. Because yeah. obviously the announced Black Widow is going to take be- take place between Avengers and Civil War. Yeah. Um, because, they, you know, if, if they do start um, introduce, introducing on a, a formal capacity Fantastic Four and X-Men, inevitably the question is going to be, well, where have they been for the last 10, 11, 12 yeah. years of the MCU. So they're going to have to try, try and slot them in in a way that sort of feels natural and complementary to the narrative, I suppose. Yeah, I, I also hope that they don't fall into the trap of, okay, Thanos is gone, let's build up another bad guy and then have another endgame type mm. finale and then yeah. move on to the next lot of superheroes. I, I hope it's not that pattern. Yeah, I mean, whether or not sort of with Spider-Man hinting at the multiverse and obviously the yep. title of the new Doctor Strange is it madness in the multiverse yeah whether or not that's going to be the the way forward for them um obviously it's going to be such an open book in terms of possible plot threads and things that they can mm. explore i mean the 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 it'll be limitless so yeah she's watch this space i, I mean they they've released um hopefully you can sort of give some uh insights i'm not a tremendous follower of the comics or anything like that my real introduction to the marvel universe was the movies mm. so they they released the eternals oh yeah i don't know much about them do you no know I, i'm not going to embarrass myself I, i'm only sort of scratching the surface with that and i think i don't know if i'm speaking for a few people but i don't know if it, it's again i can only speak for myself but it's not one that i see particularly mentioned as much as other sort of major established franchises no. Um, so no, it'll be it'll be an interesting one to sort of see again how they sort of deal with that. And then they're going to be doing the What If series, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, as far as I can work out, sort of looking at a few comments online, that's going to revolve quite heavily around the the multiverse yeah. premise. Well, it was a it was a small, from what I understand of the What If series, it was a small 
you know, comic. Uh, it wasn't even a full comic book. It was a few sort of sketches. Mm. Um, and they would sort of do, well, what if Iron Man went to the medieval ages? Well, there is, a, there is one I've got. It's um, the Zombies uh, mm. spin-off. Right. Of, like all of the Marvel superheroes as zombies. Um, that's pretty good. There's the oh god, I forget. Is it 1644? I might be completely wrong with that year, but it's like the MCU, but in sort of the early era of sort of America, right? Um, that's quite interesting. If I remember rightly, and again, I might be embarrassing myself, but I think like Captain America is like a Native American and things like that. Right. So there, there, there have been quite a lot um, where they've explored different eras, different possibilities. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not MCU, but one uh, in the DC Universe, which is really springs to mind, is uh, Gotham by Gaslight, which was a Victorian Batman. That's pretty cool. So the, there is a market for that, and yeah. it's I personally find it fascinating. So it, I don't know. Again, it's in safe hands. The, the you know they're not going to sully their own franchises no, at least. Not. You know they, they they don't have the intention to do so, but yeah, it should be exciting to see what they do. And obviously they've got endless resources in terms of sort of manpower, yeah. money. It, it, it can be done well. I mean, Endgame recently, just this weekend, passed mm. Avatar to become the most successful yeah, movie of quite, all time. It's quite sly that though, re-releasing it, it yeah, supposedly it to try and tip it over. Yeah. But people came in droves to to watch it again. Oh yeah, uh, with one or two extra scenes, maybe about thirty seconds extra. Wasn't content. there an extended uh, sort of homage to Stanley included as well? Was there? Yeah, something like five, five, six minute thing. I'm not oh, too right. sure. Um, do you want me to? Uh, Add something. Yeah, yeah, um, go on, why not? Changing ever so slightly tactfully. Um, author, Claudia Christian, uh, who, in certain circles, she's a, a sci-fi writer known uh, for working on Babylon 5. If you remember Babylon 5, mm-hmm. I imagine you were quite young when Babylon 5 was out. Yeah, I, I know it by name only. I remember it being sort of a slightly more glitzy Star Trek. Um, it didn't have the lasting appeal, unfortunately. She's releasing a cookbook for gamers. Right. Called Snack Hacks. That's pretty sick. <laughs> or Snack No, it is Snack Hacks, not Snack Hack. Um, the tagline is that it includes over over 100 fast and delicious recipes for gamers, coders, freaks, and geeks. Uh, and it has loads of asides in it as well. Like I think I believe she's done a quite a lot of audio recording for games, and there's a, a few asides uh, for sort of voiceover artists and things like that. So it's a bit of a full package. Right. Um, but out of, out of sheer curiosity... I'd sort of want to give that a look. Yeah, it's definitely... Is it... The meals, are they sort of themed around games? Well, this is what I want to find out. I want, <laughs> I want to sort of find out if, you know, we're going to have a meal that looks like a ration from Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. Uh, or Nuka-Cola from Fallout. Or yeah. it's going to be, no, this is all you need to stop <laughs> going pale, having yeah. bags under your eyes. This is a very minimal amount sunlight. of vitamins. That you yeah, need. it's uh, just a vitamin boost for these people who think, oh, that's a lovely sunny day. Close the curtains. So, yeah, let's play World of Warcraft. But no, that's that. Uh, mm, again, I don't know. But, it's one of those ones that you probably get in a Christmas gift. Read through it, thinking that's quite interesting. And then put it by the wayside because you'll never actually cook anything in it. Not with that attitude, Paul. Not with that. No, attitude. definitely not with that attitude. I'm I'm a bad cook anyway. So <laughs> if it's not beans and toast, I'm. I'm... Um, talking about Fallout, because I know you're quite a big Fallout Four fan. Well, Fallout in general fan. Mm. Um, have you read about the Easter egg which has surfaced recently? No. Uh, it's quite interesting. It's shared by a guy called Joel Burgess, who actually worked on Fallout 4. He now works at Ubisoft. But it's an Easter egg and an Easter egg and an Easter egg. Right. And he's only just um, sort of shared a few details on Twitter. Mm. Uh, but part one of it is basically a door puzzle that features within the game. And the code to open the door is 0451, which is... It's a code that features in System Shock as well as Thief and Deus Ex and Dishonored. Mm. A lot of people refer to it as the Looking Glass um, code because right. it features in a lot of their games like mm. Thief and whatnot. And then within this particular area, he's included a homage to one of his dev mates who worked on um, Gone Home, a guy called Steve Gaynor. Uh, and apparently Steve Gaynor's got a big fan of like massive, uh, massive sort of hand cannon style magnums in, right. in games. And he's included a ridiculous magnum weapon called the Gainer, as oh, in G A N I N E, E N rather. I can't spell. <laughs> and then the last bit is um, there's a body there which is slumped in the corner, sort of sat mm. against the wall with its head between its legs, uh, and it's the body's been staged in the exact same way of quite a pivotal 
um, cutscene in Snatcher, which was one of Hideo Kojima's early games released right. on the I think it was released on the Saturn in Japan, but it was on the Mega CD. So it was it was just one of these bizarre instances where he thought, well, I'm going to pay homage to this. I'm going to pay homage to mm. that, and uh, no one's really well as far as we can work out. No one's really twigged until he's shared light on it. I right. thought it was quite interesting because it got me thinking about Easter eggs in games because I think that's something else that we could potentially t- uh, sort of look at down yeah. the line because um, yeah, it's quite an interesting history with Easter eggs in games. I mean, it's just I guess it's a way to break the monotony of of creating a AAA game, isn't it? To think, well, how can I uh, put in a little bit of uh, maybe a puzzle or just a little nod to something or something? One, one of, I was going to say, up. well, this is it. One of the first um, Easter eggs was. I won't go into too much detail, but it was out of it was born of um, Atari. Basically, had the rights to all of the games that the devs made. Right, and usually, well, at the time when we're talking sort of seventies, early eighties, the devs were making games single handedly, so they were responsible for programming, graphics, audio, um, and. Part of the deal for working for Atari is that they basically didn't have any ownership of their final product, hmm. um, which is why Activision was um, created. It was a load of ex-Atari devs, who, oh, right. so you know, basically power back to the people and set up Activision. Hmm. But it, it was one of the first. It was Adventure, what a game on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. I forget his name. Oh, Warren Robinette. I'm sure it's Warren Robinette, and he put an Easter egg in where it's it just basically says created by and his name. Oh, right. And it was quite quite difficult to find, but yeah, we should we should really look at Easter eggs because there's some really yeah, ones which pillars. just like, I mean these days just absolutely leech on pure nostalgia. I don't know if they ever figured out, but did you hear about the Red Dead Redemption Two Easter egg? No, no. Um, there's, I'll briefly go over it. There is a Hobbit style home in the middle of the mountains. All right. Um, and on a tree, sort of adjacent to the the. The home, yeah. There's a tree, and it looks like a normal tree, and then you catch it at a particular angle, and it has a little code on it. Oh, really? It's like it's like Roman numerals type thing. So it's like one, five, three, or whatever the equivalent would be. Um, but then if you change angle ever so slightly, it just evolves into a tree. Right. So they've got some sort of texture on the tree that makes it go away. Depending on what angle you look at, right? And I, I, I never sort of followed it. I don't know if anybody's ever figured out what it was meant to be, but I'm certain that there's a, a slightly deeper, yeah, we'll have to look meaning into to that. it. It's got because, to be, it's obviously deliberately put there. Oh yeah, hundred percent. It's not, it's not an accident. It's very clearly yeah, yeah, yeah. numbers on a tree. It's not just you know a glitch or some sort of texture failure. It's, it's definitely there for a reason. That's and Rockstar good. lover an Easter egg anyway. Oh god, yeah. How many hidden packages did you collect in GTA 3? Oh, no. no not enough to, to I, remember. I had a friend at secondary school who connected his PS2 up to his VHS recorder. Right. And, he, him and he, between him and his brother, they recorded the collection of every single one of the hidden packages to a VHS wow. cassette. That I is... mean, that's just bragging rights. We that's went like out to his YouTube. house and said, have a look, I've, I've cl- nearly collected them all. And he's literally pieced them together. Wow. Obviously, like you say, pre-YouTube and whatnot. It, it just makes us sound so old. That's incredible. But it's—he just permanently had his PS2 connected up to his uh, VCR recorder. Yeah, it's ridiculous. That's uh, nice. One other thing that I found online—it's not really news as such. It's just a bit of an oddity that I found quite interesting. Uh, a guy's recently completed. Well, he's uploaded a video on YouTube of himself completing the first level of Goldeneye uh, using a piano. A uh, guy called Jackson Parodi, he uploaded a video two days ago, and he's mapped certain controls mm. for the game to different keys on the keyboard. Um, obviously, presumably a digital keyboard, yeah. but it's been watched four and a half thousand times. Worth a look. Wow. Um, it's quite beautiful. That is pretty <laughs> mad, isn't it? It's like, have you seen the chap who plays um, Apex Legends, and he's got one arm and one leg? No. Do you use... Presumably uses his arm and his leg to do it, then. Yeah, it is incredible. He wins quite a lot. Of games, he's not sort of just yeah. stumbling around the world, and you know you go, oh, he can control his character. Like he is. There's some incredible videos on YouTube of people overcoming yeah. sort of physical um, sort of disadvantages and sort of handicaps and disabilities in games, and completely mm. destroying more able-bodied individuals. Yeah. Um, and you see, you just can't sort of walk away from videos like that and think, yeah brilliant yeah <laughs> absolutely can. fantastic and obviously microsoft um, was it last year's e3 pulling the socks up and, and yeah. producing the xbox controller to sort of make 
uh, sort of playing games more inclusive for those people with certain needs and things like that. I mean, it's, why not? No, why not? You know, it, it should be open to all. It is one of those mediums that it should be. It should be there, ready for everyone to sort of experience. Yeah, and one of the really big nods and sort of people taking their hats off to that controller mm. is that it's compatible with anything. It's not just yeah. the Xbox. It's compatible yeah. with the PlayStation. It's compatible with the PC. I think it might be even compatible with the Switch. I was going to say, I don't know why something like that's not been done sooner, to be fair. Yeah. I don't know, it's a strange one. Um, the only other thing that I was going to mention was uh, Death Stranding. Is that a game that you've, you're have familiar with? Or? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've taken a, a couple of looks at it. Uh, that's the Norman Reedus mm. game, is it? Um, they've just—it's nothing major. They've just re- uh, revealed the box art. All oh, right. One thing about the box art is that it means the game's coming soon. Yeah. So quite interesting. Have they released a date for it yet? Oh, again, I think it's November. Oh no, I've got November in my head. It may very well be next year, but mm. I've got November in my head. I'll have to look into that one. Um, but no, I think more than anything, I'm personally looking forward to the uh, Horizon Zero Dawn engine being used in a different way. Because yeah. if you remember when Hideo Kojima parted ways with Konami in this really unusual bust up that people really haven't quite got to the bottom of and Konami came out of it quite poorly and PlayStation just snapped him up took him mm. on a worldwide tour of all these PlayStation developers um, essentially touting their wares and touting their proprietary game engines yeah. and he ended up going with Guerrilla Games engine that yeah. they used on obviously Killzone mm. uh, Shadowfall and, and Horizon Zero Dawn um, but the gameplay footage looks incredible looks yeah. absolutely amazing it's got an incredible cast as well but I'm a big fan of Metal Gear Solid, so I know a lot of my mates at school, they, they weren't fans of Metal Gear Solid because they just said it was a glorified cutscene, but <laughs> yeah. it depends how absorbed you are and how invested you are in the narrative, which I like a game with, with a sprawling narrative anyway, so I was and, always fully invested in it. And that's what I was going to say to you just then, um, you know, these types of games, they are very focused on narrative and and the sort of epicness of, of everything around the world, the characters, uh, even the enemy. Do you think that you can't have both? Do you think that you have to sacrifice gameplay for narrative? Or do you have to sacrifice narrative for gameplay? Or do you think you could really sort of merge them both? I think it has to straddle a very, very fine line. Because I think a lot of games that have failed over the years that's where they fall flat. Mm. Uh, they might have an interesting sort of gameplay innovation, but they're not particularly interesting. Yeah, uh, I know we've previously spoken about Rage 2, which they've announced that one of the big updates that's coming soon is going to be a new game plus mode, which it might make me want to pick it up again because yeah. I obviously retain all of my skills and my abilities and, and things like that and sort of give it another pop. Um but a lot of games like that sort of fall flat because they're a bit of a flash in the pan. Mm. It does need to sort of straddle it very, very carefully. Um, I mean, look at um, the new Star Wars game that Respawn are developing. Yeah. I completely forgot the name of it. Is it Je- uh, Fallen Order? Je- no. Jedi Fallen, Fallen Order. Order. I can't. I genuinely can't remember the name I, of it. I think it is Jedi Fallen Order, yeah. But one of the things that they mentioned was um, no multiplayer, single player driven. Yeah. And that... that that is an announcement purely um, shared in response to the oversaturation of, I'm, I'm going to speak quite poorly of them, but oversaturation of quite stale multiplayer games. Yeah. Um, that's not to sort of generalise, um, but there are a lot that just focus on pure multiplayer, like the first Battlefront. Oh, yeah. Hey. Even the second Battlefront. Well, I bought the second Battlefront not that long ago, purely because it was going for pennies and... It was a very, very boring game. Very, yeah. very pretty game. Mm. Uh, great great use it. of the Frostbite. They can engine, crack but, out some really pretty games, yeah. But I just... Yeah, I mean, each their own. Some people, you know, batter away Apex Legends and Fortnite and things like that, and mm. I'm not saying that's a bad thing by any means. People play games for different reasons, but, you know, I play games for a narrative. Yeah. Um, there are certain games in the past that I've absolutely battered online, like we've spoke again before about Modern Warfare 2, who didn't destroy that game online yeah. when it first came out. Um, but... I think the age I'm at now, I'm an old man now, Paul. I just like to just get lost in a story. Yeah, yeah it's. I mean, I think that going on to the Jedi Fallen Order, I think it was just in response to the community saying, "EA, come on, make a good Star Wars game," yeah. because they had made the two Battlefront games, mm. and they were they were online games. I don't. They, neither of them had a story mode, did they? Second one did, didn't did it? Because you could play as um, 
essentially play as the baddies, couldn't it? Right. Which was sort of flipping it on its head. But again, I just found it very, very dull. Yeah. So I think they were sort of saying, well, the community was saying, don't ruin the Star Wars. Because, I mean, Star Wars have been, as, as one of the very little movie franchises to make really good games. Mm. I think, you know, well, the original Battlefront. and I could say, you look at the, the games of LucasArts uh, before Disney acquired LucasArts and then uh, EA gained exclusivity for all future Star Wars games and whatnot. You look at Star Wars games way back when, sort of early 90s, early 2000s, and it was a franchise that was looked after. And I'm not saying it's not sort of not looked after now, but LucasArts, they knew what they wanted to do. Like... Um, Jedi Knight, the Jedi Knight yeah. series, obviously started with Dark Forces and then Jedi Knight, and and we, you know playing the main character Kyle Katarn, and they were all and there was such a some could argue convoluted Star Wars sort of canon to it all. Yeah, and I think as soon as sort of Disney got their hands on it, they are looking after it, but they've sort of shaved the top of it a little bit. They've yeah. tried to sort of simplify it a little bit and They've just take ownership squeeze of it, it a little bit as well yeah. for sort of monetary value. I mean, you could argue it was becoming a bit of a mess, really, to sort of keep tabs on what was canon and what wasn't canon. Uh, I mean, one of my mates, bless him, he's, he's got essentially all of the novelizations of, of mm. not only the movies, but obviously side stories and side plots and things like that. Um, and I think with Rogue One uh, and the Solo movie as well, it's... It's 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 a shared universe, a little bit like the MCU that you've really got to keep tabs on. So yeah, and they do they do a lot of things for you know uh, novelty, and they also do a lot of stuff for nostalgia as well with Star Wars. Hence the Solo movie. It's it's not a movie that ever had to be made, but they knew that there was money to be made on on mm. the novelty of having a Han Solo movie. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I thought it was cracking. I think it was. The best movie they've done from all the sort of, uh, you know, the most recent movies. Yeah. I think. You know what it reminded me of when they announced it? It reminded me of when they first announced, uh, going, funnily enough, going back full circle to X-Men, when they announced the X-Men Origins movies. Yeah. And obviously they only got around to doing Wolverine, but originally they were going to do a Magneto one. Mm. Um, but because the X-Men Origins Wolverine movie was a bit of a mess... Uh, they just panned it all, and they yeah. just they, they ended up scrapping it all. And elements of the Magneto movie are, are in first class, um, sort of his origin and whatnot, mm. sort of at Auschwitz and, and sort of being persecuted in his youth. Um, so yeah, well, fingers crossed for Jedi Fallen Order. I mean, it looks amazing. It does look good, and it just I mean, look at the strength of some of PlayStation Four in in sort of particular some of their strong titles at the moment. They're all narrative driven third person adventure games. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be joining the camp. So, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, I just hope they don't ruin it. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, was there a particular sort of thing that you wanted to mention? Because I know you wanted to... When there were a question that you wanted to sort of mention um, sort of video game environments that you'd like to visit in real life. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mentioned that a couple of days ago, didn't I? Yeah, it, it was sort of teasing the idea of, you know, Ready Player One uh black mirror you know that kind of tech mm. being a possibility where you could you know the dream for every gamer is to become fully immersed within a, a video game i think yeah and it was sort of what video game would you become immersed in and, and, and what would you do and i guess looking at storylines as well um you know because i sort of thought of the idea originally quite fleetingly but then when you kind of think about it as well uh, you know the storylines of certain games. I, I changed my my opinion about five times. Hmm. I started off with Vice City, and I was like, "Well, don't particularly want to get shot at," you know. And I started to go down this. Right. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because go on. I'll let you finish, but the, I I totally agree with that because I was trying to think of an answer to this question, but I had to have a few caveats of, you know, a <laughs> I'm not going to get shot at. B no. I'm not going to be in any physical danger whatsoever. I'm purely there as an observer. And then I was like, Bioshock. Then I was like, no, because that's far too scary. Right. I again, mean, again, it's funny you said Bioshock because that was one of mine. Yeah. You're like, well, it's a great game. It's a, 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 the first one is an incredible story, and it's you can play it on your computer and your TVs across the room. But could you really be in it? And then I was like, no, that's far too scary. I was going to say, I think more for me, it was a case of 
when Bioshock came out, it was one of those games that, that sort of the opening segment when you're in the bathosphere and you mm. sort of go down and Andrew Ryan's sort of narrating over the top. Rapture as an environment blew my mind. Yeah. I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. And it's always stayed with me that because these, these, there have been games that have come close, but that one came at a time that it just felt very, very fresh. Mm. And I still think to this day, as an environment, if they were ever to go back in a few years' time and revisit the Bioshock franchise, um, Rapture, there's, there's still areas to explore with that. Yeah, it would be, it'd be an incredible RPG mm. environment. That sort of 1920s aesthetic, yeah. but underwater. It sounds so simple when put on paper, but I'd love to go there. Like I said, you know, as long as I'm not going to be in any sort of physical danger. Exactly. But I would love to just wander about. Yeah, <laughs> as, I mean, as mundane as that sounds. It, I just remember one particular segment of playing the first game, and I was walking through um, the sort of hospital wing, um, and there was all the the chests where you would put a dead body. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's a light flicker, and you can see a shadow. That was another thing that the game was great at was sort of anticipation mm. of something scary. Not scary because it wasn't really ever a scary game. It was more a jumpy game. But the anticipation of something being around a corner, they played it really well with shadows and noises and, you know, those types of things. Uh, So I kind of walked around this corner and there was nothing there. And I picked up a couple of supplies that were sort of hanging around and I went back around and somebody came flying (laughs) out of one of the chests and I, uh, yeah, I nearly died on the spot. So I was thinking, well, I can't really do that because I think I would die. Uh, of a heart attack if I had to experience that. Well, this is it. If if we're going to have that as the caveat, if we're going to have that as the rule one, mm. we can go there as long as we're not going to be put in any sort of physical danger. You know another one that springs to mind? What? Um, Black Mesa. Right. The first Half-Life. Yeah. I... Again, I mean, it, it, it might be a testament to how incredibly sad I am. I want to go on that tram system. <laughs> I, I want to join Gordon Freeman and go into that complex. Yeah. Because it's one of those things that, you know, I know in the news people are all saying, oh, we, we need to storm Area 51. Yeah. And Area 51, if indeed it does ex- uh, exist to the extent that people are, are sort of speculating, mm. may very well be a real-life Black Mesa. We don't know. Yeah. Um, but I would love to see something of that scale in real life. About 10, 10 15 years ago, uh, when I was at university, we ended up a weird chain of events. We ended up going to uh, a power station in Wales. <laughs> right. Right. It was it was part of a, a trip with sort of university. Princess Trust. No, I won the Princess Trust. <laughs> but um, they call it Electric Mountain because it's um, a hydroelectric power station, mm. and there's a lake at the top, lake at the bottom. And I, I, again, I apologise, I forget the name, but it used to be the case of whenever there was an ad break between part one and part two of Coronation Street, and everyone stereotypically would go and flip the kettle on. Yeah. The national grid would require a boost of energy. And All what right. they do is basically drain the top lake through the hydroelectric power station and provide a surplus of energy to That's the national nice. grid. But when we went to it, we were given hard hats and air defenders. Mm. And it was honestly like driving into Blofeld's lair in You Only Live Twice. Right. It was it was incredible. And it was it felt just like Black Mesa. That's crazy. And so I came away from it thinking, I'd love to go to Black Mesa. As weird as that sounds, again, as long as I'm not going to have my head ripped off by a Vardigon, yeah, I was I'm absolutely say. fine. But uh, I'd love to sort of see that. I think you have to commit to the story, though, in this made-up uh, scenario. So you would have to experience the story, right? I'm afraid. But kill all of those innocent scientists by yeah. accident. Yeah. Like you, you tend to. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Another one that sprang to mind was Mario Kart. Yeah, somebody else said that to me. Mario Kart. Yeah, I think that would be that would be great. But would you not get bored um, I don't after know. about three races? Really? I don't know if if we are experiencing it. Are we having to have sort of weeks of rehabilitation when we get a blue shell smashing our skull in? <laughs> uh, well, you die in the game. You die in real life. I think. <laughs> well. <laughs> This is it. Is it wrong that the other day I was following a car and they threw... This This honestly happened just down the road. I was on my way to work. Right. They threw a banana peel out their window. Really? And I really panicked and swerved. 
And I thought, hang on, my car could have gone over that. But I don't know if it's just years of playing Mario Kart that I expected to sort of spin around, do a yeah. 360 and go, wow, 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 sort of my arms in the air. Yeah. But you threw, yeah, I don't know why I did that. It was just instinctive. Why do people throw banana skins out of windows in the first place? Maybe because he, he felt he, thought, he was threatened. Yeah, you looked in the back. You looked was, in the I wing mirror up. and it was Wario. <laughs> I had three red shells revolving around my little car. Yeah. Um, don't want to move on to the question I was thinking Go for about. it. Go for it. Because it's genuinely something I feel quite strongly about. And it's video game music. Oh, right, yeah. Um, I've sort of thought long and hard. Because sort of when you speak about video game music to anyone, everyone's got an opinion on what their favourite is. Yeah. But I was trying to sort of think, why is that? Mm. And I've, I've, again, it's totally my own opinion. And it may be... I mean, it is ill-informed and it is uh, naive. But it mm. might be completely wrong. Um, but I think there's video game music which has its own merits in terms of a piece of music. So yeah. you appreciate it as a piece of music and you link it to the game. But then there's the other way around. There's pieces of music that are linked to nostalgia. And so you think, yeah. Oh, actually, yeah, I've got a real mental tie to a pivotal video game memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few that sort of stand out. Because like one of the one of the earliest memories for me of, of video game music was there was a girl who used to live across the road and she had Marble Madness on a Game Gear. <laughs> right. And... I would. She'd let me play it, and I'd quickly whiz through the first level, and then the level two theme. I I still like it to this day. It's just I don't know. There was something about the melody of it which I was like, "That's amazing." Mm. Like I didn't think a video games console could be like real music. Yeah. I mean, you listen to it now, <laughs> twenty five, thirty years later, and it is very primitive. But there's still something about the melody of it. I've, I've got it in my head now. And um, where I just think, yeah, that was brilliant. And I used to just, like I say, whiz through the first level and then hold it up to my ear. And I think it gave you something like 45 or 60 seconds before the time ran out and it was game over. And I'd I'd, I'd just enjoy that 45 seconds. (laughs) I'm really enjoying this. Um, Other sort of key moments, when uh, sort of the moment video game music suddenly became quite Hollywood. Yeah. When film composers and TV composers were suddenly... Yeah. One of the first ones I remember... And I know it's a game you've played in the past. Is uh, Metal Gear Solid Two mm. when they brought on uh, Harry Gregson Williams, who'd worked on like Enemy of the State and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and when they brought him on, I mean, the soundtrack to Metal Gear Solid Two is incredible. Uh, I mean, I know he collaborated with again, I forget his name, a, a Japanese composer on the score. But I mean, he went on to work on not only further Metal Gear Solids, but ended up doing a lot of work on the Call of Duty series. All right. Yeah. Um, again, with you know Hans Zimmer worked on Modern Warfare Two and yeah. things like that. Um, but in terms of sort of video game music that has its own merits, in terms of a piece of music that if I'd heard it in isolation, I'd go, I like that. Yeah. Um, the reboot of Deus Ex. I still remember the trailer of uh, Deus Ex: Human Revolution. We're going back, oh god, probably nine years now, eight nine mm. years. Done by a guy, a Canadian composer called Michael McCann. Um, and it, it sounded, the music in the trailer, if I remember rightly, was called the like the Icarus, because the, right. the trailer had him sort of rising from the ashes and his, his wings burning and whatnot. And there was a lot of footage in the trailer that wasn't in the final game. Um, but the music sounded like the soundtrack to a long-lost Blade Runner sequel, mm-hmm. which right. at the time, obviously, there wasn't a Blade Runner sequel. We've yeah. obviously since had one. Um, and it just, I was like, wow. That made me sit up and sort of think, yeah, I was, don't get me wrong, I was excited for a Deus Ex reboot because yeah. I'm a massive fan of the first game. I've, I appreciated the second game, but it was quite different. Um, and then lo and behold, when the game came out, I mean, you can listen to the soundtrack on Spotify. Music's amazing. Mm. Uh, the opening cinematic when Adam Jensen's having surgery and he's been augmented and his life's been saved, um, it just felt like sort of the, the, the style to like um, the opening of The Walking Dead or yeah. uh, Breaking Bad or it had that kind of cinematic edge to it and even the music on the main menu it just it was so atmospheric um, another one going back a good few years was um, Streets of Rage yeah that was classic uh, classic uh, it was I mean I was a Mega Drive kid growing up and had a lot of games on the Mega Drive I mean a lot of classics like you know Aladdin Quackshot uh Obviously, all the Sonics. Massive fan of Sonic growing up. Mm. Um, but when I first played the first Streets of Rage, I didn't think that the Mega Drive was capable of what I thought at the time, as a six, seven-year-old, real music. Yeah, I was like, Yuzo Koshiro, and a uh, guy who joined him later on, and increasingly so throughout the Streets of Rage series, a guy called Motohiro Kawashima. 
Um, they just made the Mega Drive sing. And one of the sort of key influences, particularly for the first two games, was um, sort of US house and techno music. Yeah. And he, he perfectly emulated quite a lot of it. Again, if you go on YouTube and you type in something like Streets of Rage music influences, mm. he's got them off to a T. Uh, I mean, when the third game came out, I mean, the third game, there was a bit of a delay, but well, there was quite a, a lengthy delay between the second and third game. And it came out towards the, the, the latter end of the Mega Drive's lifespan. The music was very, very techno. Mm. Uh, I've spoken to a few people online about it, that the music in Streets of Rage 3, again, it was technically impressive. But it wasn't sort of... It wasn't... that They weren't instant classics like they were for the first two. It was yeah. more influenced by real, uh, like, IDM, like Orteca and Aphex Twin, and really obscure, sort of quite divisive electronic music. But, on the whole, if you were to play Go Straight which is like the first track in Streets of Rage 2. Mm. It, it's still up there for me. It is still absolutely up there, and it's it's just fantastic. Um, another one, again, thinking of yourself, there's a video game piece, well, there's a piece of video game music which you can recognise after simply two notes, and what? that's the uh, the iconic piano piece at the beginning of Fallout. Yeah. Two yeah, yeah. notes, and you've got it. And, yeah. you know, when Fallout 4 came out, obviously it had been a good few years uh, since New Vegas, Big fan of three. Uh, bought Fallout Fallout Four the day it came out, and as soon as it had a slightly lengthier introduction, and then it went, duh, duh, and yeah. as soon as it did it, bang, you get goosebumps. You're like, this is going to be fantastic. He's just setting the scene perfectly uh, for that series, and it's such an epic game needed such an epic beginning, even though it was such a simple piece of music. Mm. But then I suppose that's that's key, isn't it? Sort of keeping it simple and instantly recognisable. I mean, you could play that on anything, and you sort of get it. It reminded me. Sorry. Uh, have you ever watched uh, Westworld? You know what? I haven't. And again, it's one of these series that everyone keeps telling me I would absolutely adore. The introductory music to that, the intro music, is incredible, but it's very similar to the Fallout right. soundtrack. I'll let you listen to it. It, yeah, it sounds yeah, yeah. awesome. Um, another one that I wanted to mention was the soundtrack to the reboot of Doom from 2016. Right. Always been a big Doom fan. Always been a big... It's software fan. Um, every new version of Quake, every new version of Doom, Rage, for example, which we've spoken about before. Um, when Ed Software announced that after Rage they were working on Doom sequel, I think I was, and indeed a lot of people were quite apprehensive because I mean Doom Three was technically incredible and the engine at the time was amazing, but it was it sort of shifted focus from what Doom was from being sort of an all out sort of action fest of mm. sort of shooting and gore and slaying demons at quite a fast paced rate to something that was a little bit more slower paced and relied on um, sort of shocks and scares and a mm. bit more of a horror element and sort of like what's creeping in the shadows um, and obviously Rage itself again technically impressive but as a game was quite flat I mean I liked it but across the board it didn't have that appeal um, but when they had the gameplay reveal of Doom in 2015 I think a year before they um, sort of release the game my god I mean that, that is still one of the best trailers of a video game I've ever seen because it just completely blew any expectation I had uh, not only did it look incredible the gameplay looked sort of really smooth and fast flowing um, I took part in the multiplayer alpha right. and the multiplayer beta for that and it was one of the few games where I've actually really persevered to try and get a place on them yeah uh, and it had sort of snippets of soundtracks albeit quite sort of ambient pieces but i was like oh this is this is hinting at something quite good and mm. um, but then the, the the when the game came out the soundtrack was just spot on it didn't sort of go all out thrashy metal like no. doom 3 did because that that's one interpretation of the, the the first two games in that i mean the first two games themselves were midi renditions of sort of popular rock and metal um, and then the third game just took it that little bit step further and just made it all out sort of thrash metal and sort of heavy rock. Mm. But Mick Gordon, the composer, who I think prior to Doom, he'd, he'd worked on a few things, like including um, the reboot of Killer Instinct on the Xbox. Um, he just perfectly mashed guitars and electronica yeah. in a way that upped the ante. Um, and one of the things that's really, really worth watching... Um, his, his presentation from two years ago at the Game Developers Conference where he goes into his creative process and he sort of gives a little bit of an insight into the construction of the, the soundtrack. That's cool. 
It's absolutely amazing. Uh, I mean, he embedded like hidden pentagrams and six six sixes and uh, the opening theme. Uh, is it the main main menu theme? Uh, sounds like a guitar, but it's actually a resampled and and heavy filtered chainsaw sample. Right. And uh, he managed to get his hands on was it an early eighties uh, Soviet Union keyboard, which uh, he said it's this most ridiculous over-engineered mechanical marvel yeah. but it's got this unique sound that you put into the soundtrack and that effort behind the soundtrack shows when you play the yeah. game because it just perfectly marries it up um, and then one last thing that I wanted to mention was a piece of music that it's, it's sort of really nostalgic for me I listened to it again this morning on Spotify and it was, uh, do you remember Infamous? Uh, they had Infamous Second Son on the PS4, but then there was Infamous and Infamous 2 on the PS3. I probably would know it if I looked at it. Um, it was made by Sucker Punch, who had previously done sort of Sly Raccoon. Um, and it, you, you played a guy called Cole McGrath, who was a courier. And basically a, a chain of events leads him to end up having superhuman powers. He's right. like got electricity essentially running through his veins. Uh, and the hook of the game is Oh, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was I played say, the second one. Second one's really good. The second one, it tell me if I'm wrong. I might be thinking of a different game. Is the second one where the first guy becomes a bad guy? Yeah. 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 yeah I've played it. I mean, the first game itself is quite dated now because it was sort of released at the, the sort of the early days of the PS3, and the PS3 took a while to sort of find its feet. But the soundtrack was done by a Brazilian guy called Amon Tobin mm. or Amon Tobin, depending on how you pronounce his name. And and again, he was one of these people who. I had all his albums before he was announced as the composer. And he'd previously done the soundtrack to Splinter Cell 3, Chaos Theory. And right. I ended up buying the soundtrack to that because he's, his music's very, very unique. Yeah. Um, he used a lot of field recordings in a lot of his later stuff where he'd basically go out with recording equipment. And hmm. a lot of his music was solely created by found sounds. Right. Um, but he was on Ninja Tune. I was a big fan of sort of the Ninja Tune record label, big fan of sort of like Mr. Scruff and things like that. And when he was announced as a composer for Infamous, I was like, oh, okay. But then I found out he was um, collaborating with a, a TV and film composer called um, James Dooley or Jim Dooley, who had previously worked on Pushing Daisies. Now, funny enough, I watched program. Pushing Daisies yeah, at, at, at the time. And I remember thinking the music was fantastic. Mm. Uh, and those two collaborated. And then at the start of the game, the, the opening cutscenes told in the style of like a comic book with sort of different cells and pictures and whatnot. And then when you finally sort of re- uh, get control of Cole, he's basically in the middle of this crater in the middle of the city that you play in. Yeah. Uh, all hell's broken loose. Everything's dilapidated around you. And you're basically trying to come to terms with what's happened. You're staggering around. You're figuring out that you've got these bizarre powers. And this first piece of music called Genesis kicks in. And it's amazing. And I sort of listen to it now, and it's a perfect mix of sort of Amon Tobin's sort of sometimes sort of bombastic, multi layered sort of com- compositions, but then Jim Dooley's sort of soaring cinematic sort of yeah. edge, and it mashes perfectly. And it's just one of those pieces of music that when I listen to it, I'm like, yeah, it's brilliant. Really, really good. Um, and again, the only other piece of music that's ever, that ever came close, because um, I was quite a latecomer to the Assassin's Creed series. Yeah. Uh, one of the, I mean, the first game I played was um, Assassin's Creed 4, and the only reason I bought that is because at the time there were very few games out on the PS4. Mm. Um, early days of the PS4, it was going through a bit of a, a stale period, so I thought I'll take a punt on this Assassin's Creed mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. It's, it's well regarded. I'll give it yeah. a, give it a go. Um, absolutely loved four, and then inevitably ended up buying three. Yeah, uh, playing that on both the Xbox and the PS3 over the years, uh, and again just recently picked it up because the main theme of Assassin's Creed 3. Still brilliant, yeah. And I still think, I mean, Assassin's Creed Four, the main theme on that is very, very good. Um, but I still think the main theme for Assassin's Creed Three is still fantastic, yeah. Uh, and it's been used. Um, I kid you not, it's been used on Top Gear. Has it? <laughs> yeah, I swear it's been used on Top Gear. Every now and then you watch an episode of Top Gear and you're like, oh, I recognise that. And then every now and then they were doing a sort of a road test or something, or it was one of the challenges. And I turned to, uh, I turned to my wife and went. That's Assassin's Creed 3. That's really strange. What's that doing in there? That is really strange. But, um, yeah, there's there's so much incredible video game music, and I'm sort of undecided. I think now we've got to the stage where video game music itself isn't um, sort of bound by the technical limitations of the machine the game's running on. Yeah. Um, You know, it it is... You've got limitless opportunities. But then I, I sort of think... 
the, the, the path we're taking now is that there's a lot of indie and retro style games yeah. that are coming out, um, like Shovel Knight and things like that, and they're almost pushing uh, sort of game soundtracks forward while simultaneously playing homage to what came before. Yeah, for me, um, video game music is kind of all about the context and mm. what's happening around you. So, like, um, historically, I mean, it's not as an in-depth uh, analysis as yours, but through the years... The games I've played, so Skyrim, for example, the menu music and the uh, just the general sort of aura music, because it isn't really a, a a game that has a major soundtrack throughout it. Um, but the the soundtrack during battles with dragons, it just completely uh, sets the scene, doesn't it? It's, just it's yeah, perfect. it's just perfectly yeah. The, that menu. The, the sort of first menu I could sit and listen to for a solid hour, mm. <laughs> just listening to it. it. It just loops itself, but it sounds amazing. And then there's Halo. Um, when I first started playing yeah. Halo, and you know you you're driving over the hills, heading towards yeah. your next objective, and the soundtrack's just booming. And again, it just it's, it's quite a similar soundtrack to be honest to Skyrim and Halo. When I think about it, sort of sweeping and soaring. Yeah, and that kind of. Yeah, like uh, really get gets you going and gets you sort of hyped up for for the battle or whatever it might be. I think this is why there was a bit of an uproar, wasn't there, when uh, Bungie parted ways with long term Halo composer. Uh, I forget his name, but he, I believe, he worked on the first Destiny, and then mm. was it halfway through production on Destiny? Potentially, they parted ways with right. him, and a, a lot of a lot of people had followed Bungie from Halo to Destiny, yeah. uh, and were obviously understandably a bit miffed. But, yeah, I mean, I thought Destiny had quite a good soundtrack, to be fair. I never quite understood why Paul McCartney composed... Didn't he compose an end credits Did sort he? of theme to it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, I, what was that for? I don't know. It was a strange one. It's just so they can slap a name on it. But well, recently, for me, um, I just... Com- well, not just completed, but a couple of months ago, completed Red Dead Redemption 2. Mm. And for Rockstar, I mean, to be known for soundtracks... Yeah. But not songs of they they've obviously created themselves, but to be able to perfect uh, perfectly summarize uh, uh, an era of lifestyle um, with with a soundtrack like Vice City, for example, mm. it just encapsulates the eighties perfectly. Yeah, um, with their different types of radio, um, and it also sort of represents every type of style as well. You've got you sort of you know, rock and roll, Aerosmith type music, but you've also got your um, Miami Vice type music at the same time. Mm. And Red Dead Redemption 2, obviously you're out in the, you know, middle of nowhere, going from saloon to saloon, so there's no music at all throughout the game. Yeah, It's quite a silent game. All you can hear is your your horse, you know, trotting along, which is which is really sort of... You know, it gets you really immersed within the, the, the landscape that they've created. But every so often, and they did it in Red Dead Redemption 1 with the mission where you're going from the US to Mexico. I don't know if you remember it. Did you play that oh, game? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where it's just a really somber piece of guitar music as you're sort of trotting along and you start to trot in like slow motion. Yeah. And they did that with Red, Red, Red Dead Redemption 2. They did it twice throughout the game. And. Uh, the particular piece of music is known as God. What's it called? It's called like the last ride, mm. and it's the ride. Sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, it's the ride before Arthur dies. Um, what? I'm joking. Oh right, I see. Uh, <laughs> it's the is the ride before he meets his fate, basically. Yeah, and you, you can sort of see it coming because the way that the story's been built, and you can sort of see well. This might be the end of the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it kind of it gets you a bit emotional. You feel as though you, you know, you personally are riding into your own fate. Mm. And I think the the piece of music is called uh, "Stand Unbroken." I think it's called. Somebody might correct me on that, but I'm certain it won like a Grammy. It won all sorts of, um, you know, video game awards for for that piece of music. It's just an incredible piece, and I've listened to it a, a solid few times. And um, I can't remember who who composed it, but it was like a, it was some sort of pop star. I can't yeah. I can't quite remember, but 
it is an incredible piece of music. I was going to say, talking about video game music winning awards, there's, um, again, I'm pretty certain these both did. Might be BAFTAs, might have to look into it. Mm. But uh, Journey on the PS3, and then oh, right. later released on the PS4, and a game that I absolutely loved in a, in a strange way. It was it, I just became thoroughly absorbed in it, and it was um, oh, was it, everybody's gone to the rapture. Oh yeah, I mean that. So even when I think about that game, I'm like it just very cinematic. I played it? it, and I had I had blinkers on when I was playing it because mm. I just became so absorbed in what was happening. Uh, and again, sort of me and my wife sort of pulled the sofa up and we just, I think we played the game in one big sitting. And there's some truly emotive moments in that, perfectly complemented by the soundtrack. Hmm. Uh, I mean, all the cutscenes in that game are told um, sort of via like light shadows, hmm. sort of like um, figures made of light, which are meant to sort of almost be like flashbacks, sort of reliving uh, or playing out in front of you uh, events that have previously happened. And there's some truly heartbreaking moments. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, again, you know, like we said at the start, it's, it's a perfect mix of, I mean, that is, that's not a game that's going to win any awards for its gameplay, but it was it was certainly a game that its narrative, um, the way that certain pieces of story were sort of staged and presented to the player, as well as its soundtrack complementing that as a package, uh, was very, very strong. Very, yeah. very strong. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. To chat about... I'll always try and bring it back to Fallout because that is my favourite theme. But the way that Fallout incorporated music from, you know, 40s, 50s, maybe even a little bit of the 30s. New Vegas is fantastic. In The way that they just created sort of a soundtrack for, you know, trooping around a wasteland while fighting hordes of zombies and ghouls and whatever... But at the same time, listening to Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra, yeah. it's so strange, but it works. Yeah, they, I mean, they could have easily gone quite futuristic and had your stereotypical yeah. sci-fi music, but then to tap into an era long gone. Uh, but I think the, 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 the whole aesthetic of that game is yeah. very, very sort of 20s, 30s influenced, isn't it? That almost Americana 1950s version of the future. Yeah, uh, of, you know, all cars are sort of bubble shaped and it, all pastel coloured and the Jetsons type. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, influenced by that sort of vision of the future, absolutely. But it's just beautifully. It, I like how. I mean, I, I've I've read the sort of lore and and things like that, but yeah, how sort of life just stood still technologically in, in some ways because obviously they've got things like robots who can talk and cut fences and mm. change the baby and things like that. But they also have cars that are really old and, and, and mm. quite basic technologies as well, like the computers. Well, it's like you say, they'll have a, a robot that'll cook the dinner, but they'll still go to um, to work in a double-breasted suit and a fedora. Yeah, it's great. I, I just it's absolutely brilliant. love it. Cool. So, yeah. Well, that's us then. Should we call it quits? We should call it a day, I think. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for listening. We hope uh, that was entertaining to an extent. To an extent, yeah, I guess. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Cheers.